Welcome to The Pathless Path. I'm Paul Millard, and in this podcast, we examine the invisible scripts that run our lives and dare to imagine new stories for work and life. So today, uh, I am talking with good friend and uh, I would say one of my path role models, uh, Kehi. Uh, second time on the podcast, maybe third time, I'm not quite sure, but definitely has injected his ideas and wisdom into many of the different episodes and my conversations with people. Uh, want to talk about his uh, recent um, sort of scaling back of uh, new business ventures and sort of the the mindset and emotions behind that. And I'm sure we'll riff on a bunch of other things. Um, excited to dive in again, Kay. Thanks for having me. And I was so excited I got to meet your daughter before. So that's what that's why we're here, right? We're here for for the people we love, the listeners, our families, our our lovely spouses, and we're both girl dads. Yeah, it's amazing. And I, I think I think this is something that's actually hard to convey. So I've I've visited you at your home um in the middle of a day in California and like your kids are running around, you're there, like you're getting to see them every day. And I don't think people realize how powerful that is and like how big of a motivating factor that is. Mm-hmm. Um Maybe set the scene of like that and like how that's been so vital for you. Because I think you'd take it seriously and lean into it. It's uh, so I'll tell you, I'll tell you two things. One, you know, we we're going to jump right in here and we won't spend my background. We'll spread the listeners my background. But just the one piece of information that you need to know is that I worked on Wall Street for a long, long time, 14 years and then I quit to not really become a creator, but I ended up being a creator. So that was eight years ago. And I say this, Paul, because I had this moment. I, I, every time May 4th rolls around, it's like that's when I walked out of the offices. So there's kind of this demarcation of the calendar and so on. And so May 4th is, is around the corner. And I'm like, wow, it's been eight years. Maybe well, we'll release about- this on May 4th. <laughs> or May 5th, because I like tequila. Um, so the the thing that 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 I realize is, you know, I don't I'm not one of those people that like tracks my net worth and all that, but like every maybe four months, you know, something will make me go in like taxes or estimated payments or something like that. And I did it. Uh, I went in recently and I was like, oh, damn, my net worth is exactly the same as it was eight years ago. And it was a nice number. So like, we're good and all that stuff. But something hit me is that a lot of the bozos that I used to work with, you know, when I left, my net worth was significantly higher than theirs. But eight years staying on and me being off they not only did they catch up, they like wildly surpassed me. And I felt like shit about myself in that brief moment. Really? Yeah. This is so interesting because I've experienced this too. Um, I was sort of doing the calculations of what I would have made mm-hmm. in the past. For me, it's May too for me. Mm-hmm. So it's six, six years coming up. I'm two years behind you. And I'm probably down like a couple million dollars. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, on like missed out earnings, but 
the reality is I couldn't have actually made that money because like I couldn't continue on anymore. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, but and that's at the same but at the same time like I feel crappy yeah. because like that past identity, there's a certain mourning of that identity mm. and also it's this weird thing like I think you're maybe a little better off financially than me. Like I honestly feel like I can't actually afford to be friends with some of my old friends. Mm. And that is like that kind of saddens me. It's just a harshness of yeah. how the world works today. Oh, man. Yeah. And I think for me, it's less the identity. And I do feel lucky that I I can, to to an extent, afford to be friends with a lot of my friends. Some of them are, you know, doing like, you know, $20,000 vacations. It's like, <laughs> sorry. Um, but I well, think you're on me, vacation most days anyway, so I know, you don't need the vacation. <laughs> yeah, and I live by the beach. So, But I think for me, the thing that it's less the identity for me was actually like the dollar amount. I'm like, oh, wow, like I could have had like an extra five million bucks or something. And I'm like, wow, that's like, you know, that's a lot of money. And but it's not the money itself. Obviously, it is a lot of money, the money itself. But it's the the temporary sense of self-worth that that gives me. Right. And that's the thing that like it, it doesn't last long because you you started off with like I was like, I see my kids every day, super present, super chill, like my best hours, like four or five hours a day for eight years. Like my daughter once saw me wore a suit once one time. She saw me, she's like, why are you dressed like Barack Obama? <laughs> I'm like, that's what she thinks suits are for presidents. Like, uh, so I would never trade it, but I want to, you know, this conversation is all about, and our friendship and our tweeting and our social is all about just being real with people that like, it, it sucks sometimes when you're just like, wait, that person was below average, <laughs> but they just stayed. Yeah. Um, I think it's weird because the, those moments also dissipate too. Does this happen for you? Like the longer you're on this path, it's like, oh, I see you. I see that weird thought, that that like fear of the uncertainty of the future. And it's like, I, I know you'll go away. I just need like a good night's sleep. Yeah. Yeah, I think that I have a lot. I'm just more grounded in, in who I am. I think that Chris, actually, uh, one of your guests or, or guest podcast uh, bloggers, he said to me once, he's like, Kay, um, and Chris, I hope you're okay with me sharing this. Uh, he said, Kay, he's like, you know what I what impresses me about you? And he's like, it's not your writing. It's not the way you can build an audience. And it's not your entrepreneurship skills. I'm like, well, what am I then if it's not those three things? And he's And he said, it's that you're crystal clear about what you want and what you don't want. And I was, and I said to him, like, wow, that is, that's a cool compliment, you know, especially from someone like Chris, who is, he doesn't suffer fools. No. Yeah. He's been super supportive of my path too. Uh, what do, what do you think it is about the money then that, um, has been hard for you? I think, and then we'll, we'll tie this to the business. I think there's still some part of me, maybe it's, 
10%, 15%. Maybe you can't measure it with a number. It's a, it's a non-zero but non-majority part of me that likes winning. Mm. And and again, you have to decide what game you're playing. So like you can't win a game that you opted out of, right? Because you're not in the game anymore. But the brain, and, and, and so the, and I think the winning comes from like it's it's an, an egoic desire, right? Um, so I think that when it flares up, like I do, I'm a competitive person and, you know, I'm intense about certain things, especially when I'm passionate, when I'm in it, right? And I think that in this case, it's like there is, there is still some percentage of me that is anchored to a quote-unquote traditional definition of winning and 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 there's a few things it's like well, well that's not your definition right i'm definitely winning by my own definition um but i think there is a part that's like it's like i could you know it's like i i think there's two things it's like i know that if i have had stayed i would have won that game but you already there, won i know but i think it's like it's the comparison part of it, right? It's like winning is always going to be a relative thing, right? And so you will always, hmm. there's always someone you can beat and there's always someone you will lose to, right? Well, if, this, this, is, yeah. this is interesting to me because I don't mm -hmm. experience this at all. Yeah. Like I, no, I, I don't, uh, I don't feel this. And I, I sometimes think I'm an alien. Like I'll talk to people and they'll tell me like, don't you think about this? And it's like, oh, I never thought I could yeah. like think bigger. I, it, I think, but it's, this could yeah. be my own fears. I think I do have some fear of success that I have mm. not figured out. Interesting. Yeah, and maybe I'm not saying you're doing this, but maybe there is a dis disassociation to 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 this. And I think, I mean, it's. Or maybe you, you know, like there, there, there are people, there are a handful of people that say they're like, oh, look at, you know, Paul and look at like Lawrence, yo, like they, they like genuinely don't care about this game, like whatever this game is. And I, and I'm not, I would be lying if I'm like, I care a little, like I, it, yeah. I don't care enough that it alters my behavior, but I do care enough that it can still rankle me. Well, and I think there's a, and I've talked to Lawrence quite a bit about this. I, I think the thing is like, we're not trying to not care. Mm -hmm. Like this is just our default state. Yeah. yeah. So, so I talked to somebody like Danny Miranda mm -hmm. and I'll be like, whoa, he thinks so bold. Yeah. And then I'll literally go through the exercise of like, how do I like take a little piece of that and inject it into who I am? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I look at Danny and Danny is a great example. Um I see a lot of myself in Danny or when I was his age. Yeah. You know, that intensity that just like I'm going to do this at all costs. And part of for me, not I'm not speaking for Danny, part of it for me was like I was majorly insecure. And so being so intense, being so competitive was uh, my method of overcompensating for my own insecurities that I had in my 20s. 
I'm much less insecure about a lot of things in my 40s. I'm definitely insecure about some things still. Um, and so I look at a younger me and I'm like, oh, you were doing that because you were so insecure. And now you feel more com comfortable. But I think like, I bet that, so that was 40-year-old K looking at 20-year-old K. I think 60-year-old K will look at 40-year-old K and be like, man, you were really insecure in your 40s relative to where you are in your 60s. And part of that is just the wisdom of yeah. aging, right? So I'd love to reflect a little on your journey. I've always like looked to you as a role model. It, yeah. And it's you've given me so much permission, I think, even without explicitly giving me that. Just like when I came across your story, it's like, oh, somebody doing something that feels like good. And you're just like early on in your journey, you you did a bunch of side gigs and stuff, but more or less you were just hanging out on the internet, sending mm -hmm. out a newsletter, and then helping tons of people. Mm -hmm. um, how did you give yourself permission to exist in that state? Because um, I know you were spending a lot of money too. And yeah. that like that really triggered me knowing how much you would spend on like your podcast and coaching. I was spending like mm -hmm. zero. I was like, I need to yeah. break even every year. And my net worth was yeah. like 200 grand when I left. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I will. So part of it, and I think this is like a very important thing that I, I'm very open with sharing with creators. Like I had multiple years on BlackRock, in BlackRock, making over seven figures. Um, and my lifestyle never caught up to that, anywhere close. Yeah. And I'm a very, I would, some people would say aggressive. Um, I don't think I'm aggressive, but I'm a very aggressive investor. Like I'll put like 60, 70, 80% of my net worth in stocks, like S&P 500. I don't buy, I don't like speculate or anything, but like, I keep very little cash and I invest very heavily always. Yeah, that's an interesting thing too. I I keep a lot more cash, I think. Mm -hmm. um, I'm actually trying to work through this now. I, for me, for some reason, cash, even though like worst case, it's going to go down 20, 30% in the market. It's just like, oh, cash is what I can buy my freedom. That's like further mm -hmm. runway. Whereas like, I don't know if I put it in investments, it's like dead to me. Yeah. Well, I'll give you this. We're probably getting a little off, off course here, but like, again, to show you the level of my aggressiveness in investing is I borrow money. I borrow cash. The reason why I don't keep cash is when I need cash, I borrow it against my stock portfolio. Just so, to keep your money invested for yeah. the long term mm -hmm. and not have to pay taxes. Uh, like when I sell, like not have to buy and sell and buy and sell and buy. So I've I've been investing in the S&P 500 since I was 16 years old. I'm 43 and I've never sold a share. So I've Do never you think your taxes. net worth is too high now. Um, If I want to die with zero, it is. It, I think it depends on when um, I'm not I have very little liquidity. So like I'd have to sell and I'd have to pay a lot yeah. of taxes um, and a lot of it is in retirement accounts. Um, I, I don't think it's too high because I spend, I'm a pretty high spender, mostly on living expenses. I live in like very expensive places by choice. 
Um, and you rent, you rent, so it's flexible. I rent. Yeah. Uh, so (laughs) I can dial it up and down. (laughs) Um, and like, we love to travel. Like I don't like stuff. Like I have a five year old Acura, like I'll drive that thing until it, you know, falls apart. Um, the most expensive piece of clothing I own is like four $60 t-shirts. Um, so like, I don't really like stuff that, that much. Um, but you know, we have a, my kids go to public school, but we have it. Our rent will always be a disproportionately high part of our living expenses. And a second amount, the thing is when you work for yourself, you have a lot of freedom to travel and we take advantage of that freedom to travel. Um, and we do not have that, like, I think cause I started traveling often later in life, like more, like, like I, n- I never had that like youth hostel mentality cause I, I went to college and then I started working and like immediately I could stay at like pretty nice hotels, like when I was 22, but I only had one week of vacation. So, um, so I never like, I never slept at traveling. And I think as a 43 year old with two kids, like it's, it, I, I refuse to go back. Like I can't go back. Yeah, I love that. Uh, it's kind of like R- Ramit Sadie's uh, rich life, rich, right? Yeah. I think that's so helpful for me and Angie because we we spend like very little on some mm-hmm. things, but when it comes to travel and flexibility and yeah. like doing things that um, make our life better, we're like all in. Which is yep. like just spend. I spent when we spend a lot of money, uh, my wife and I, on coaching, getting coached. So we get coached individually, we get coached as a couple, we go to retreats, um, I get professional coaches. So like I spend a lot of money on coaching as well, getting coached. What What's the best coaching uh, you think you've been surprised by or uh, gotten the most out of? Oh, by far, um, couples. It's it's not therapy because we have they're not licensed therapists, but it's it's basically therapy. Um, couples by f- by far, I think the thing that I've realized about marriage is, I think that you know I grew up, I grew up, um, I'm Asian. Um, like there is a. And I'm going to speak in general terms, but at least what I saw in Asian culture, Asian representation of marriage is that there was a factor of pragmatism in it, convenience in them. And there was an opening for that marriage to be, I don't want to say loveless, but absent of love in seasons, right? And that was okay, right? I think like to me that's an that's like a baseline picture of marriage. Now, obviously I don't want that for myself, but when it's your baseline, you also don't you don't view that baseline as being bad, right? It's just the it's average, right? And so I think there's part of my conditioning there. And then um my wife's parents uh, they were divorced. They got remarried. Uh, very different household. Um, and so we bring all of these, like, you know, call young until you make the unspoken spoken. It will dictate your life and you'll call it fate. We bring a lot of unspokens into our marriage. 
They're unspokens in how we see ourselves and they're unspokens in how we see our marriage or our idealized version of our marriage. Then you put in the things of like 10 years, we've been married 11 years. So like, you know, the, the everydayness of marriage starts to seep in, right? There's not that fiery passion of your, your youth. Kids add a whole new wrinkle of needs and demands on your time. Long-winded way of saying that, like, I think that you're fighting, I think marriage fights, uh, like, and I don't like to use, like, fighting analogy, but I, there is an element of marriage of, like, swimming upstream, especially in, like, the young kid, young children phase of life, because they take all your energy. Yeah, and there's, it's, I sense there's just sort of a default script that many people are running with marriage. And if you do that, it's almost like that is destined to fail. It's kind of mm -hmm. how I think about the default path of work. Yeah. <laughs> if yeah, you just yeah. blindly follow it and aren't intentional with it, like it's not a good strategy. Yeah. And there's two default scripts that are colliding. Yeah. Right? And it's not too. like one plus one equals two. <laughs> it's like one plus one equals three because there's all these different permutations that where you, you might be in sync in one and out of sync in the other and grossly in confrontation with the third. Yeah, Angie and I sometimes don't even have the words for what mm. we're talking about because yeah. we grew up in different cultures and different languages. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it was kind of an advantage from the beginning because some of the, we sort of had to create our own script mm -hmm. because there was no default to go into because we yeah. just grew up in different worlds. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a constant journey of just reflection and figuring mm -hmm. it out. Totally. So, want to go back to your path? So, yeah. you did um, you did a bunch of stuff. If people want to dive in more in detail to your path, there's the first podcast we did, which dives in to that journey a little bit more. You wrote a bit for Quartz. Um, you were doing coaching. You were doing uh, the Rad Reads newsletter. And you built up a steady following. Mm -hmm. At some point, you decided you were going to scale up and go mm -hmm. all in on the course. Yeah. Um, talk to me about how you were thinking about that at the beginning mm -hmm. of when that was starting to take off. Yeah. So September of 19, we did our first productivity course. It was called Supercharger Productivity Cohort 1. It was kind of like a big group coaching thing. And I did it. It was fun. Um, the students liked it. It was easy to sell because it was the first time, like, I hadn't asked my list for money. Yeah. In, you know, so that was September of 19. I started Rad Reads in 15, in four years. So I had sent, I'd been in their inbox for four years every week and not once, with the exception of Patreon, but that doesn't count. Not once had I asked like, hey, I have something to sell you. So the first time I did, I, there, I think like, I think we sold 15 seats and I think 15 of them were like, finally, we get to thank Kay and let's just buy the thing he's selling. <laughs> right. Right. And it was kind of a productivity course around the app called Notion. So we did that. I'm like, oh, that was cool. That was fun. That was pretty easy. Um, I felt alive and like the money was nice, right? So immediately threw another one together. Threw another one, made more money, 
same amount of fun made the product better. Always felt like for me, if I was going to do products, like I had to, I had to feel like a hundred, like I gave it like 110%, 150%. I had to be so proud to attach my name to something that I was asking people to pay significant. I think it was $800 at the time. So then it just keeps going and going and going. And then I didn't realize it at the time, but if I were to notice what was happening, what, what was happening was I was getting all these signs, some were direct and some were indirect. That's like, the way you make more money at this is by becoming better at marketing. And I didn't realize it at the time. It was just happening. So what does that mean? Like I, somewhere in the middle, like maybe around the third version, they were like every three or four months, just so people can like think of the, the staging. Um, someone's like, you should really learn copywriting. I'm like copywriting is... It's like people on the internet are obsessed with it, but like no one else talks about it. <laughs> um, so I'm like, oh, copywriting. I'm like, okay. And this is where a few confluence of factors came in. The first was that I'm pretty adaptable. And so if you're like, if someone was like, hey, you need to go learn AI and make a course on ChatGPT, like I could do it. I'm not arrogant. I wouldn't make a ton of money, but like, I know I could do it because I would just show up, right? So I'm adaptable. B, the game part that we were talking about, like copywriting is a little bit like when you get into marketing, when you get into copywriting, you start to like, you start to reverse engineer the game a bit. And that's why some people hate copywriting. And that's why some people love copywriting, right? <laughs> if you like to reverse engineer the game, you'll love copywriting. If you like hate it. the game, you'll hate copywriting, right? And so those things all started to like trickle in and there was a giant overarching factor, gigantic COVID. COVID made everyone seem like a genius in the <laughs> entrepreneurial land. It's so true. I have a good story about this. Go. Um, so I had some tooth issues and I had, I had a tooth extracted and I had like an infection and I was like literally like really sick for like three or four months. And during this time, my consulting skills course, um, two and a half X in revenue and started, started making like seven grand a month. And I'm literally like, just like sleeping every day and like struggling with my health and go to the hospital. It was very bizarre. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, this was spring 2020. So exactly. I COVID saw it too. made every, especially if you were an online business, it made you look like, I remember turning to my wife, Lisa and saying, I don't know what it is, but entrepreneurship's really easy. <laughs> uh, Everything you did, you created a new product, like everyone wanted to buy it. It was just, it was shooting fish in a barrel. So Turn, all these Turns things, out everyone just had too much savings and too yeah, much time. Exactly. <laughs> too much savings, too much time. Uh, and so, but it's easy to see that in, in hindsight. Yeah. But sure. while we were in it, you're just seeing this like hockey stick growth. Like if I'm doing it from memory, I think that the cohorts, it was like 15... 10 grand, 20 grand, 40 grand, 80 grand, 100 grand, 130 grand, 150 grand with this, not the same amount of effort, but what felt like the same amount of effort. So you're just watching this thing go up and you're just 
like, oh my, it's kind of like the, what do they call them? The frontiersmen that found gold, right? They're like, oh my God, I found the thing. You, you, you hit it, right? And to use entrepreneur speak, you got product market fit. And so what do you, what do you do when you have product market fit? You throw gasoline on the, on the thing, right? That's what the traditional, that's what the traditional playbook says. And it's very, very intoxicating because again, you were, there's so many factors happening. Like the creator economy became a thing. So like, not only were you making all this money, but all these people around you were being, were like pointing fingers at you. You're kind of like a new, you're like the cool entrepreneur, right? And so like all this like confluence of events, it's so fucking easy to do. Everyone's telling you how awesome you are. Um, you just, you're still living the life that you purport that you want, you know, like you don't have to go to the office and all of that. And it's intoxicating. I think I got lucky because one, I had the health challenges all of 2022 yep. or all of 2020. Billy Bros and Tiago Forte reached out to me at the end of 2020 and said, you got to join this accelerator. Your strategy U course can take off. You got to turn it into cohort-based course. And I, I felt that. I felt the glow of being chosen. I yep. felt the, the like feeling of, oh my gosh, I can make a ton of money. And mm-hmm. I reflected for a day. I also had a, paras- <laughs> I had a parasite at the time in Mexico. So I... <laughs> I think like all these challenges helped me out a little, but um, Mm -hmm. I was like, well, what am I going to do if I have more money? It's like, I'm going to write. And so I decided to write Mm -hmm. my book. And I think I got, I got lucky in that I didn't go any further down that path and writing the book forced me to even write more clearly what I was really doing. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I will like hundred percent honest, like, when I saw you doubling down and doubling down, like I was kind of worried about you, but mm, I didn't yeah. know how to like, I wouldn't know how to like say that to you. Yeah. It, like maybe I should have reached out. Like I was just like, oh, this is getting bigger. Like I yeah. feel like that's not him, but you also don't know. Cause it's like, well, I'm sure Kay has it figured out. Yeah. I mean, I think that, it's hard to know in the moment because, like I said, I think yeah. intoxicating is the right word. And again, like I, I think in. Hey there, it's Paul. I just wanted to take a second and thank you for listening to the podcast. If you'd like to support more, I'd love if you'd share this podcast episode or the podcast as a whole with one other friend. Sharing it like that is the easiest way you can help me grow the podcast, get better guests, and help me continue on this long game. Next, if you're enjoying this conversation, you'd probably enjoy my book. You can check out my book, The Pathless Path, which has now sold over 40,000 copies. You can check that out on pathlesspath.com. And finally, if you're looking to find the others on unconventional paths, I've started a community the Pathless Path community, where you can find others on unconventional paths. You can check that out on pathlesspath.com slash membership. All those links you can find below and back to the episode. In my quote unquote defense, like working hard was like going from like 30 hours a week to 40 hours a week. You know, it wasn't like 100 hours a week, like many other entrepreneurs 
like online entrepreneurs. And I was still, all of my non-negotiables were yeah. still protected. Like I was still surfing every morning, you know? Um, but yeah, I think, like, you I know, I think that's the thing. If, if you had sent, like, if you had sent your newsletter, I've stopped surfing because there's more, uh, like there's more hustle in the morning. I would have been, I would have been like, all right, I got to yeah. fly to California. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and look, there have been, I think the biggest one was I used to stop working at about 5, 15 PM. And once that phase happened, I would basically, eat dinner with my kids, and then I would work from like, I'd eat with dinner from like 5.15 to 6, and then I'd work from like 6 to 7.30. And that was probably the biggest uh, change. The other thing, Paul, was that there, there was a promise that is half true, half not true. And the promise is that as you grow a team, you can stop doing the things that you don't want to do, right? And I think I've seen you and Paul, uh, not Paul, uh, Johnny Miller have, and Marie have some of these conversations. I think that it's partially true, right? So what are things that I don't like doing? I don't like operations. I don't like anything with process. I like most things with creativity. I like most things with social like the fun, not the like rote part of it. Um, yeah. And I love live events. So if you think about it, like I was actually able to hand off almost everything. Like the, when Supercharger Productivity was humming, like I would show up to the lecture like 20 minutes before, deliver a two-hour lecture, and then like I hadn't, it was like the, prof, like the famous professor at the college. <laughs> like they just, they just like walk into the crowded lecture hall and then like yeah. someone hands them like a piece of paper and they give their thing that they've given a hundred times and then they walk out and then like everything else happens like facilitation, TAs, like all that. Like I had, I, I had an amazing team running all that stuff. And so to, to, to some extent, like it was kind of cool to be like, I haven't like created a zoom event in like five years, three years. That's nice. Right. I haven't like I haven't like launched a Slack group. I don't even really write in ConvertKit anymore. Like I write in Notion and then someone puts it in ConvertKit. So like th there is that trade-off. I think the thing that that trade-off misses is uh, which I wrote in that post is organizational complexity. So you pay a complexity tax, right? So what's the complex like I have just works. I have to like make decisions on like how much we're gonna subsidize for healthcare. I have to make decisions about which 401k provider to provide. That's like at the organizational level. And then you have all these employees with all these different needs. They have work needs. They have professional needs. They have emotional needs. They have, and if you're a caring boss, you absorb a lot of that. If you're a dickish boss, you just like tell them to go screw themselves. <laughs> and I was definitely more on the caring side. So, so it is this like, it's this weird tension where it's like, I, I look at the course creators that stayed like one person and a VA and like, I'm like, yo, you do a lot of $10 work, right? And like, I just, I, I, hate, I I'm almost <laughs> rather take on that organizational complexity than do $10 work 
But that's a personality thing. Yeah, I think I think I I I've tried to optimize or automate away a lot of the stuff. So I I think you actually can get around it by like design. I'm relentless about designing work around what I actually want to do. Yep. Right. So I try to eliminate all the ten and a hundred dollar work, and mm-hmm. I probably give up upside. Yep. Right. But I'm consciously doing that such as the only engagement I need to do with my like consulting skills training business Mm -hmm. is like thousand dollar work. Yeah. So like people have to apply in a form to work with me. It tells them the pricing. They opt in. I send them back a form and then I say I don't do phone calls. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And they're like, well, we have to talk to you. I'm like, it's okay. I don't. Yeah. yeah. I'm not going to do this project. Right. So. Mm I think if you're going to do things on your own, you need to figure out what you actively drop the ball on. Yeah, yeah. And you have to be like Because if you're going after everything, the creep of 10 and $100 work is inevitable. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you have to be, it's this weird thing because like I don't, if you're going to run a one-person business, there is a, there's a limit to, how much money you can make. And you have to be okay with that. I think people will look at like Justin Walsh, for example, and they'll be like, well, Justin Walsh makes, I don't know, you know, I'm just based on his tweets. Like he makes $2 million a year or one and a half million dollars a year. I'm like, yes, but Justin Walsh is like the Google of solopreneurs. Like for every Justin Walsh, there's like 10,000 people that can't even break even. Yeah, and even just look at me, my my incomes over the last six years are like thirty-two grand, forty grand, twenty-four grand, seventy yep. grand. Like mm-hmm. and then last year was crazy. It was like two hundred forty-nine K. But yep. I don't know what it will be this year and the next year. And it like I'm pricing in a good probability that it will go down too. But that is I'm thriving. Yeah, but like, if yeah. you want to make more money, it's just very hard on your own. Yeah, it's very hard to make money by yourself. And I think the myth, like the and Justin is not promoting this myth, but there's a there's a narrative, especially on Twitter, that it's like very possible. And the reality is like, no matter how you skin it, there's it's just the math just breaks down. Unless you can charge, even if you can charge people 5,000 bucks an hour, the math breaks down really quickly. Books though, books, books yeah. just keep selling. That's true. <laughs> the, yeah. This, this is the best passive income I've ever, yes. I'm literally not, I'm just retweeting people. I love it. I love it. But I, I thought I was going to sell like $500, 500 copies. So I have no idea what I'm doing or how to help anyone else do this. So that's awesome, man. And again, a testament that like there's going to be there's value in playing outside the traditional game. Like you and I will agree on on that. I, I'm not. I haven't been fully convinced on the on the book side for myself uh, to not play the traditional game. Um, maybe that's a conversation for some other time. Um, but also, uh, there's there. There's, it's extremely. I think you also have to have a sanguine look at like what's in your realm of possibility, right? And I think people will look at Justin and they'll be like, that's in my, it is in your realm of possibility, but please probability adjust it. 
Yeah, it's funny. I look at people like him and I'm instantly thinking, okay, what are the traits he has that I definitely don't have? Right. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of a relentless hustle and commitment towards making a lot of money. And it's like, I don't actually have that. I should not apply his playbooks to my life. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But there's always things I can learn from those people. I'm always asking the question of like, what's the 80 20 version I can apply and still Mm -hmm. integrate it in like my way? Yeah, absolutely. So you scale up, it was going well. Um, I think. It was really cool just to see you bring people in and give them freedom too and give them flexible schedules. Um, I was definitely inspired by that. Um, but it seems like just demand for cohort-based courses was uh, headwind. Um, profitability wasn't really scaling. Mm-hmm. So talk to me about that. Yeah. Look, I had all the best purest intentions, right? Like I wanted to be fully remote. I wanted to have cultures of transparency. I wanted to have unlimited vacation, like all the stuff that like people, you know, in the same way that I didn't blaze a traditional path in my own employment, I didn't want to, I wanted to blaze my own path in how I ran a business, right? Uh, we didn't have a work day, right? We had 30 hour work weeks. We didn't very li- little communication and no emailing internally. You only had to check Slack a couple times a day. And we all like it was um, an earnest effort to to do all all that. And, and we did that like we we lived those values. Um, I think a few things. The, the biggest one was that the demand for cohort-based courses collapsed. And in hindsight, it collapsed in January of 2022. And then it fell off a cliff in, I think people were like, oh, it's gonna collapse and then stay this, just like stay the same at a lower level. But like it collapsed and then January 2023 hit and then it collapsed like even more. Uh, And so, you know, I give myself grace in that, like, I don't think there was an execution problem there. There definitely wasn't a product quality problem. People love our course, all right? Uh, we had super low refund rates, like people talk about it all the time. People love the course. You've seen it on Twitter. Um, so we didn't have a product problem. We just had a demand problem. And the demand problem was... Exa- the exacerbated by a cost problem, which we had kind of grown our cost base in a, a, in anticipation of future growth. And what we were served with instead was just a dra- dramatic uh, collapse. Now, I'll tell you that what I realized later was kind of like once, you know, there's a few course creators that I've talked to who are like, everything collapsed so quickly that there was no like, should we keep doing, like, should we wait and see? There was no time for that because things felt like 90%. You can't wait and see, like you were literally not gonna make payroll, right? And so there was a lot of freedom in the abruptness of it because there was no deciding. Like the decision was made for you, like your product, is not viable now. And so you have to take a really hard decision and you know I had to let go of three people like 
two weeks after I had offered them full-time employee benefits. Uh, and then you're like, well, what the fuck do I do now? Right. And you know that we could talk about what do I do now? I think the the thing that I realized in hindsight was, you know, I think for me, Paul, I think part of it goes back to like this element of playing a game. Like I like the game of business. I think that there is, and that's why I like building this up because there was like, oh, I'm going to play by my own rules. I'm going to like do shit that people think is weird. And, and, and I want to build it the way I want to build a company that I would want to work for. Right. And, and I'm really proud of what we, what we did there. Um, I think my personality is like, I like the business side of things. I don't love it. Like if, if all I did was sit and create in isolation, that would make me very unhappy. But if I had like a 10 person team and I was just being a CEO, like allocating work the whole time, that would make me very unhappy as well. I don't know what my ideal mix is of those two types of activities. It feels like being 80% creative, 20% businessy is like a, the right mix. And I would put marketing under the business, the business side of things, but I could also just be experiencing a lot of, like, I have like some corporate PTSD of like what happened, right? Like I thought I was on top of the world and then I had to like fire off my team, right. In, in like a span of six, you know, eight weeks, um, and then deal with the ensuing ensuing uncertainty. So I don't know, like, am I just having this like reclusive, like be really small company of one moment now because of the whiplash that I just experienced? And like, or is that my steady state? Or am I just okay? And I just, I'm a very, emer I'm emergent to myself, right? Like my, yeah. my tastes and preferences are emergent to even me. Yeah, the, the way I sort of conceive of my path now is that there will be seasons yeah, and I'll shift in and out of them. I think that's what's made me hesitant to start like a thing mm -hmm. um, because it would kind of undermine the natural flow of like the ups yeah. and downs and the creative bursts. Um, yeah, you texted me, you felt like you had to like quit. Mm. What yeah. is, is this quitting again like eight years later i i think that there is there is a part of where it's the intoxication right i think i got intoxicated on wall street and then i felt the hangover and then i started something new i think there's a similar pattern here is i got intoxicated by some of you know at a much smaller scale right but it's still, right, intoxication is intoxication. And there is like a, a you know, like a, a, a cleansing or a purging or a fasting that follows a period of that, of that, like where you give space for your true, your clearest thoughts to emerge. You give space for your purest intentions to, to emerge. So I do feel that, and honestly, I feel just really beat up by the whole, like, I feel like emotionally beat up from um, the whole, the whole process of it. How are the combos with your team? That must've been really hard. Yeah. I mean, 
you know, laying people, I I did have to lay people off when I worked on Wall Street. But then you're like, you're like a messenger for, yeah. you know, for, yeah, like they can, the, sh- for the they're, shareholders. They're making a lot of money, though. So it's like. Yeah, uh, I think here, the, the heart, I mean, there was a few parts. It's like laying people off. I mean, layoffs usually happen in a recession. But like this one, hap- this one feels different than some of the other ones, this recession. So that's one. But I think the hardest thing was like. Like I, I didn't hold, I felt, and I know it's not true, but this is what I felt. I felt like I had not upheld my end of the deal, right? Because a lot of people were like, look, I could go join this, you know, I could make a lot more money, have way more benefits and all that, but I'm choosing, I'm like, I'm making a bet on you. Uh, and And I feel, I felt very disappointed that I did not, up, I I felt like I let them down. Like I didn't up, uh, uphold my end of that bargain. And then there was just the, the, the reality of, um, of just like, yeah, it's like, I hope, like, I recognize it's not easy to get a job in the middle, uh, you know, in, in this, in this environment. So those were, those were the feelings, but I, I, I tried to do, I was extremely generous on severance. Where like you know, speaking with peers and stuff, they were like, "You're crazy, dude." I'm like, "No, I think this is the right thing to do." That's how you know you're on the right path when people are telling you you're crazy. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly. usually a good sign. <laughs> that's a that's a good point. So, um, and, and for the most part, everyone is still like, you know, I'm a reference. I'm like forwarding them, like, "Hey, you know, check out this person. My friend's hiring part time on this." Like talk to them. I'll put in a good word. So I'm still a part of their careers because they've asked me to stay a part of their career. So to me, I feel good that like I did like given difficult situations, I did the best that I could. Yeah. And And never forgetting the human side of it all. Yeah. And what's the last month been like kind of digesting this? So the last months it's been, I mean, I feel so creatively alive and inspired, right? I think I had spent a good chunk of the past three years where every free moment I had went into, every free creative, every creative juice that I had went into marketing. And I I realized that like, I think I had a, I had a double-edged sword of like, I'm a pretty good marketer. And so you when you're good at, like it would have been better if I sucked at marketing. Because when you're good at marketing, you're like, well, like I don't want to do this thing, but I'm, you know, I'm good at it. It adds value. Uh, but now that I'm freed, like from the burdens of marketing, I'm like, I fucking hate marketing. Um, <laughs> I would much rather write you like a three thousand word, like well written, well thought out, long form blog post that could basically be a chapter of a book, than a 3000 word sales page where you're like, make sure you needle their pain in paragraph seven and make sure your H2s are like less than 80 character, you know, like all that bullshit. Like, uh, I didn't realize, you know, like fish in the water. I didn't realize how draining that was. There's two things I didn't realize were so draining the organizational complexity that, that we talked about. There's like someone always needed you. And then, the which felt very like Wall Streety, like you're just like it was on a different scale, but like that 
like, oh, someone always needs to talk to me. Uh, and then the second one being um, the like, wow, marketing sucked all the creative oxygen out of the room. And so both of those are gone now. So, you know, I've been like cranking out like 3000 word blog posts like in a week. Like I, I didn't write a 3000 word blog post in in three years. And I've written three. I've been reading them. I definitely feel the energy. I was like, yeah. oh, Kay's, I was like, Kay's back. <laughs> and, I, you know, and again, it's like, it, it's, a se- it, it's a season. So it feels good. I will say yeah. though, like, you know, we still have one employee and one, one contractor. And, you know, it's like, there's still, there's still overhead. And so there is still some pressure to make, make money beyond feeding myself. Um, and that's, that definitely feels very challenging because you don't want to just jump into something just because you can make money. It's like the quickest way to make money. That's the worst place to be in. But, um, it is chat, man. Like it is very, very challenging regardless of what industry you're in regardless of whether you're a small company or a large company, it is very, very challenging to make money right now. The The interesting thing I've experienced is yeah. I never went to cohort. I actually did two cohorts of two different courses and then shifted all to self-paced courses. And I didn't mm-hmm. see the big spike, but it's basically been a steady increase yeah. since wow. 2020. Like I've not had any decline. That's awesome. Um, which is pretty interesting. I think part of it is I'm not selling into the tech ecosystem. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas the rest of the economy is a lot more robust right now than the rest of the economy. But mm-hmm. yeah, just another data point on um, what's the average courses. price point on the self-paced. Um, I think like my average sales price is somewhere around like three fifty to four hundred. Yeah. I think um, I feel like that's a good. That's a, yeah. that's a good price point. I think the thousand and like, that's like, like when something's 500 bucks and up, people are like, oh, that's a big expense. But like under 300, it still feels like, you know, like two, like two nice dinners or whatever, you know, however, however someone would justify it, especially. And I think this is the other thing that I, I've been struggling with is as I've gotten older and more mature in my own creative journey in my own life teaching people skills like productivity is this, the ultimate promise of productivity is like, you'll make more money if you're more productive. And I'm just not interested in teaching people how to make more money. This is why I wrote a book. Yeah. I think you should write one too. Yes. I think I'm, cl- I'm, I'm, I'm firing up the wheels. Like I'm not interested in, I, I, and any successful info product business, I suspect, needs to have some anchor, like some road back to it needs to be like, I made more money because of this thing. And I think that that just sets me up to fail in if I by staying in info products. I do think people do underestimate making money from books. Like you, I, I, you can make, I, I think you're, you I can make right. seven to eight dollars a book. <laughs> Yeah, what I'm seeing now, and I think your email list is probably yeah. more powerful than a publisher's network. Yeah, yeah. I see. My think about the 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 book uh, uh, going, and, and feel free to, to 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 punt this conversation. But the one the one thing about the book, because there is this traditional versus self paced self 
like pathless path approach to it. For me, the, and I've seen these, some of these debates, but like, it is the like getting on radio, getting on like local shows, like, like, get, I feel like, it, like, let me it ask It doesn't you, matter. Nobody, nobody buys books from radio. People buy books from Ali Abdal. And Ali Abdal will do a video about your book, regardless of who you publish with. Yeah. Well, yeah, you, yeah. All, no. you, all, you, all you need from what I've seen is 10 people like Ali Abdal. 10. So like 10 influencers, yeah. And you're way better at that than me. And you, you're more, uh, you're better at marketing than me. You yeah. would absolutely crush it. It's just nobody has the counterfactuals. I yeah. think like, this is where I challenge you is like, I would just ask yourself, like, d- what do you gain from doing it on your own? And like, who might you inspire? Yeah. Yeah. It's a- and the other, the other option is you can do it with somebody like scribe. Mm. Like they, they have a full staff that can like help you break into stuff, but yeah. I don't know. I think this is changing. Yeah. I think this is changing so rapidly. The values of the value of like authentic influencers like mm. you who will put their name behind stuff and recommend stuff, that is the value. All a publisher yeah. can offer now is basically a network of those people who keep agreeing to publish with them. Yeah. The publisher doesn't add anything. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. <laughs> but don't you think that like like writing for the New York Times, like get like or writing. I mean, that's obviously like writing an op-ed for for the New York Times or getting excerpted by the New York Times. Do you think so that what? is not? Do you? <laughs> well, hey, you you are you saying that that? Like, I'll give you an example. Like when CNN wrote like a profile piece on me, it was like ten thousand subscribers overnight. Yeah, L- but like, you have them on your email list already. Yeah, I would just say grow your yeah. email list. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's definitely that's definitely a priority now. <laughs> um, I, I think yeah. like this is a very abstract conver- conversation. Yeah. Like when people talk about this stuff, it's all about the what if. And like, what if, I yeah. think people think these traditional publishers have magical powers. They will yeah. literally do nothing for you. Yeah. No, I've seen that. I think at a certain level of advance, maybe they'll do something. But yeah. what the high advance does is raise the stakes on you and you're like, shit, I'm going to give this launch all mm-hmm. out. I'm going to go all out. I literally didn't put any effort into a launch and I've already sold 20,000 books. Yeah, yeah. And now I have leverage in the market. You can sell your book to a publisher. They're all trying yes. to buy my book now. Mm-hmm. Um, but they can't afford me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they don't have anything to offer. <laughs> No, you, these are all, these are all great. And, and I think I, it, what really resonated is like, it's like, everyone's always like, well, what if you got in the New York times or like James Clear got on, you know, good morning America or like all of that. And it's like, a, you can't just like rebut with like one example like that. And B, there's probably things that are way more impactful, closer to reach than than those things. And and I do agree because it's funny. It's like I know a lot of traditional published authors and they always come to me and they're like, they're like, so how do I do video shorts? And like, if you're asking me how yeah. to do video shorts, you're barking up the wrong tree. Like, um, and so it, it's funny. It's like you just assume that they like 
push a button and then you're like, you know, you're, you're like on like a hundred podcasts. It's like, no, it's like, first of all, like I, I can get, I could probably with effort, I could get myself on a hundred podcasts. I don't need a publisher to get me on a hundred podcasts. People would be storming down the door to promote your stuff. You have given so generously, like you're like a Uber example compared to me. <laughs> like you've been doing that. it far. It's true. You've been doing it far longer. You never ask for anything. You're always trying to support people. Um, I don't think it matters what path you went. It would yep. succeed either way. But I think you have a very like beautiful message worth sharing. And I think the only thing that matters is that it gets in the hands of people because I think what I've found is the audience for this kind of writing, and it's still surprisingly rare, Mm -hmm. is very large and very appreciative. Yeah, yeah. Um, And they don't want a rad productivity book. They want like Kate... That's they, not want happening. K, they, they want K pouring his soul into yeah. his pages and like letting it rip. And I don't know if a publisher and editor will let you do that because they're yeah. trying to hit hit a mass market of like middle-aged moms. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a good point. And, and I've made it very clear I am not writing. If anything, I might write in like a, why I'm walking away from productivity book, like the yeah. anti-productivity book. I think that would be really cool. I don't want to write. I don't really want to write a how-to book. So here's the okay. here's the thing. Nobody would have touched my book. No one yeah. would have given me a publishing offer. Was it because of the topic or because of your audience size? No, I didn't have a big enough audience, and um, they're not evaluating quality of writing or ideas. They're evaluating just like metrics. And my uh, my framing and ideas did not fit into anyone's bucket. Yeah. The New York I have outsold the New York Times work writers. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I'm sure. I've, cr- I've crushed them. Yeah. They're working for major institutions with big time publishers. Yeah. What's well, like a like those books are what like ten thousand? Like I always remember this like a a good a publisher considered a good book five thousand copies for nonfiction. I'm like, my God, I roll I think with some four. Some I think 4% sell more than 1,000. Wow. 4% but sell yeah, more than 1,000, yeah. You, there's a lot of books that get published. I mean, like companies yeah. like Shiman & Schuster like write $10,000 checks to pretty much anyone who's in an That's executive position option, in yeah. New York. Yeah, yeah. Right? And they just like get them to write books, and they're never all that good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but you have like your book will crush because you've a b tested your writing over and over again you have an authentic message and it matters yeah oh man <laughs> all right i got my marching orders i'm i'm excited i i am i do believe that i'm entering a season of creativity i love um, it and um, i feel really good about that and it's funny because that season i'm leaving a season of productivity like even if you told me that like you know, we, we've delayed the next launch of supercharger productivity to next January, just to like, give us some time to see how things shake out. But, but every day that goes by when I'm not thinking about that product, um, is like, there's a lightness to it. And again, it's not dismissing. It was a great product for its time for my season of life. 
with incredible colleagues who built it. And I'm not taking away any of that, but I think the season, uh, it feels like I don't, I don't even really write about productivity anymore. So like, why would I teach a productivity course when I, I like the only time I write about productivity is when I want to sell my productivity course. That should tell me everything I need to know about myself. Yeah. It, and that's the hard thing, right? Because we evolve and change as people, uh, but mm-hmm. we're still trying to to make it work on these paths. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like you've heard me say, like I want to be a creator for thirty years, like like where it's actually like making a living off of it. Um, I'll probably do it for longer because, like, I, I I always think like uh, like Ram Das, you know, the 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 late guru. Like, if yeah. he was around now, he would be the most prolific. Like, there's. There's 10,000 oh, yeah. hours of his audio tapes on the internet. Alan Watts. Yeah. Um, Alan Watts too, yeah. And so I want to be like that, like, I want to be like those guys. Or it's like, you even like, monetization is not even, it's like, I have a message and I want to get the message out. Yeah, and I think it's, it's pretty wild. I mean, you've been on this path eight years. When I quit my job, I literally found myself so lonely not lonely i had friends i had family but there was no one around that was like doing this stuff and now it's increasing but it's still so early and so uh, early yeah i'm pumped to continue to watch your journey and i do think i think that there is i think that there's another shakeout coming too unfortunately because you know that covid era was it was a it was i don't want to call the economic era around covid was fake it was inflated by yeah. like too much attention stimulus checks yeah i think i think the people that find a connection with creativity ultimately end up experiencing something that matters in their lives and they're going to protect that yeah. and find a way to bring it forth can yeah. they make money from it I don't know. Um, I think the revealed preference is over time, most people quit these journeys and most people prefer high incomes in the knowledge economy. So yeah, and then you're just left with the crazy ones like us. Yeah, (laughs) exactly, (laughs) exactly. Uh, I'm happy to recruit more and more, you know? But I think the, the cool thing is that I hope, like I'm very transparent. I try my hardest to be like, this is not a journey for everyone. Yeah. Like there is a lot like you, you, everything from the, you know, a very tricky one in the United States, healthcare to, um, to the loss of identity or not the loss of identity, but the, uh, the inability to, to be put in an identity bucket to the volatility of cash flow to the, weird tax things that you need to do to the fact that it's like really hard to get a mortgage. Like the, the odd, like, and I think that's kind of cool too, because it, it, the system is kind of meant to shake you out. If like you said, revealed preferences, if you don't truly want to do this, the system will <laughs> yeah. shake you out. Yeah. I'm like, like your first health care over yeah. here. And yeah, I've had all sorts of healthcare craziness, but I love figuring it out. I love being on the edge. Yeah. Yeah. And kudos to you, man. Healthcare, navigating healthcare for yourself is hard. 
you know i just got rid of insurance it made a lot it a lot easier yeah yeah i I just told my (laughs) wife that and like we have dental and she's like i can't find a dentist like just call the the best one and just offer cash see what they say it's so much easier once you figure that out it's often cheaper yeah i mean we could go down a rabbit hole but um (laughs) anyway that's probably a good point to stop i appreciate you uh stopping by uh the pathless path you're always welcome um appreciate you sharing your journey excited for what you're going to create i will support your book no matter who you publish it with (laughs) um but uh yeah i do think that would be a gift to the world yeah no thank you you've been a you've been such a such a role model and and like i said you and I think it's like you and Lawrence, um, like they're the two purest rippers, like purest, (laughs) right? Like my shit's still a little laced with like some lingering capitalist, you know, anxiety and greed in it. Uh, Capitalist hunger, we'll call it. But like you and you're like the, 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 like the cleanest Molly, you know, that like, um, that I, I, I think Lawrence is that I still do like the, I still do like these consulting workshops and I'm like trying to charge a lot of money and I'm just like, man, Lawrence is the purest. His, his episode is great. Um, his episode is great. If people want to check that out, I'll link that up and you can learn from the master. Yeah. Lawrence Yo from More to That is easing world class talent. <laughs> Amazing. Well, thank the you. You're a Smalley out there. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Kay. Uh, Rad Reads. Um, Go, go there. I'll link it up in the show notes and you can subscribe. He's still just shipping an awesome, genuine, authentic newsletter and I love it. Um, Anywhere else you want to plug? Yeah, Twitter. I'm having the most fun I've had on Twitter, just messing around, cheering friends, talking to people, not billboarding people. Um, <laughs> and I've been doing a daily video short for 180 days. Um, and that just came. I really wanted to learn how to do video. And I never, I don't want to become a YouTuber that, that feels like, being a YouTuber feels like worse than being like a Wall Street analyst. Just the like sheer hamster wheelish nature of that job. Uh, but I, I, I've always thought that video, I feel very comfortable on video. And I always thought video was kind of this kind of missing piece of my creative arsenal. And so I'm like, ah, let's just try 30 days of shorts. 30 turned into 180, 180s turned into 360. So having a blast uh, over on Instagram, Brad Reads Co. I love it. Yeah, that's the key is like quit, quit stuff you don't enjoy and just yep. keep playing around. That's what makes this path fun. Well, thank you, Kay. Uh, I will end it there and uh, rooting for you. Thanks, buddy. You as well. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you for listening to The Pathless Path. I love having these conversations. And if you want to support me, you can rate, review, or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. You can also follow me on YouTube, where I post all the video interviews of this podcast as well. Finally, you can always support me by buying my book, The Pathless Path. It's a book I'm really proud of and has most of my best thinking and probably my best writing in it. And you can get it for less than 20 bucks. So grab that. It's in the show notes. And thank you for listening.